0: Informal transit is gonna be the next frontier. I definitely have the immigrant story and experience. I did feel like I would be a fish out of water. There was only two black males in my graduating class. The preconceived notions that I had about white people, wealth, gender, everything got completely smashed. It was an amazing experience working with a friend as well as somebody that I admired. And that's when the acquisition offer started to come in. This is when I realized that there was actually a solution to this transit. transit desert issue. Over 100 billion trips are taken annually through informal transit systems. The people in New York City who are taking dollar vans, they can be a part of this journey with us.
1: What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Great to have you back for our latest episode. Thanks so much for listening in. That was Susani, founder and CEO of Dollaride, a mobility company for communities that are underserved by public transit. Sue is a former college athlete who grew up in Brooklyn as a first-generation son of immigrant parents, and Dollaride is his third, that's right, his third startup. It's a great story. Our episode is sponsored by Virtue Lab, a nonprofit fighting climate change by providing funding and entrepreneurial support to clean tech startups. Their annual summit, Fuel 2020, is going digital this September, spanning over 2 weeks with short events every day. Fuel 2020 is a great chance to connect with future-focused entrepreneurs, investors, researchers, and more. Use the code FoundersFriend for 20% off your ticket. Learn more at 2020fuel.org or find a link in the show notes. I heard this idea on the Startup Story podcast with James McKinney, so shout out to James. Here's what we're going to do here at Founders Unfound. If you are a black founder who is still struggling to get recognition, there's another way to get onto our podcast absolutely for free. Just leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or at Podchaser.com. If you do this and identify yourself as a Black founder, I will read your review in an upcoming episode. So make sure to plug your company, URL, and all the relevant handles. So why not? You're basically getting a free ad as a thank you for taking the time to give us a review and support our mission. So be sure to drop your review today. As always, you can find Founders Unfound anywhere you regularly listen to podcasts. Now, including iHeartRadio. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Please follow, like, and share to help us grow. On with the episode, stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode number 18 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Sue Sani, founder and CEO of Dollaride, a mobility company for communities that are underserved by public transit. Welcome to the show, Sue, and thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me, Daniel. I'm excited to chat with you today share more about what I'm working on with Dollaride. Awesome. So uh, I guess, first of all, how are you doing in this era of shelter in place and with social protests swirling around us everywhere? Hey, how's your family? How are you doing?
0: Fortunately, I'm doing well. My family is also doing well. We actually have one person, a cousin of mine, who did catch the coronavirus. He had a, a really traumatic time in the hospital. So it got pretty serious at, at one point a couple months ago. But you know, fortunately he survived and he's and he's doing well and actually he's even back at work. So um you know I have very little to complain about. For the most part, family and friends were all doing well.
1: Wow, that's amazing that, that you knew somebody who went through that extreme. I think the more the more this goes on, the more we'll all have somebody in our lives who may experience the seriousness of this. So let's just quickly start off with why don't you just explain very quickly what is dollar ride? how does it work? Sure.
0: So Dollar is a mobility company for communities that are underserved by public transit. What we do is we provide digital infrastructure to the informal transit industry. So a good way to think about this is, you know, all around the world, especially in the emerging markets, the predominant way that people travel and, and commute is not really through a state or a federal provided transportation system. It's through informal transit where there are local entrepreneurs who have their own vehicles or maybe renting a vehicle, but they basically provide a fixed route service in local cities and neighborhoods for the public and they do it for profit. So now that transportation is becoming more and more of an issue, you know, because of the inequities that exist because of public transit's rigid infrastructure, informal transit I think is going to be the next frontier. So Dollaride is creating the digital tools and infrastructure that makes it easy for these types of informal drivers to pick up more passengers and serve a larger community of riders. And we also partner with government agencies and other businesses so that they too can access informal transit.
1: I love it. I I know that in many, many places around the U.S. and even around the world, there's just, as you said, sort of this loose, informal network of transportation providers. It makes total sense that somebody would come along and make that more efficient and easier for for riders. But before we get more into Dollar Ride, let's hear a little bit more about you. So you're in New York. Are you from New York? I currently
0: live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, but I'm a New Yorker,
1: born and raised
0: through and through. So I, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn. My family currently lives in Jamaica, Queens. So that's where my parents live. And I lived there at one point before moving out of the house and, and, you know, taking care of my own deal. But yeah, I've been living and working in New York for
1: majority of my life. It's a one-of-a-kind place. And is your family from New York?
0: No, not originally. You know, we we're immigrants to this country. My family's from Nigeria and, you know, there's a huge Nigerian network in New York City. But for the most part, you know, my parents immigrated here in the 70s, along with several of their friends and and some family members. And, you know, over the next couple of decades, you know, they created this like or at least joined this huge network of Nigerian families around the New York City area, you know, who all seem to work together and, and help raise each other's kids. You know, I definitely have the the immigrant story and experience as growing up in New York, but I was fortunate to be surrounded by a, a huge, you know, loving network of of fellow Nigerians and, and
1: Nigerian-Americans. Yeah, that can be so powerful for sure. And so were your parents entrepreneurs? Did you have some inclination to being an entrepreneur when you were young? Was it entering your thought process early or how did you think about entrepreneurship?
0: Wow. It's funny because I wish, you know, my parents were more entrepreneurial or that I had stronger examples of entrepreneurship in my immediate household. In fact, for me, you know, I thought I was going to be a doctor, you know, most of my life until I got into college and was studying pre-med and I was a biology major. And then, you know, I realized that this is not really for me. You know, I was having more fun in college playing football and, and doing the whole social thing. Then uh, you know that I realized, you know, what I'm—I'm I'm not cut out to be a doctor because if I really, really wanted to do this, I would sacrifice all these other things. And I just wasn't willing right. to make the sacrifice. And that's—that's that's how I knew that this must be a different path. But uh, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't in my household directly. So I ultimately got exposed to entrepreneurship and what it's like to be a business owner through my uncles and and through mentors that made a bigger impression on my life once I left college. So after 22 years old.
1: Interesting. And, you know, I know for a lot of children of immigrants, being a doctor, being a lawyer, (laughs) you know, sort of taking, taking that safe, lucrative path is sort of the the way that you sort of get nudged. And, and so how did it feel to grow up in New York? You're a person of color, you're from an immigrant family, you're part of a community. Was there a lot of conflicting aspects of being part of so many communities? And New York is really built for this, but nonetheless, was there challenges in growing up that way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There were challenges. You know, for one, you you use the term nudge to to describe how sometimes your parents, especially if you live in an immigrant family or um, if you have immigrant parents, you know, how they want to influence your professional career, or your decisions. And, you know, knowledge is definitely a light way to put it. In, in my household, you know, there was only three options my siblings and I had. And that was either we were going to become a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And there was really no other discussions around other professions in a, in a serious way. So, you know, until I got to college, did I really realize that I, I could be good at other things. yeah it took me a while to grow in in that regard
1: so I know that I saw in your background you went to Kate school and Mm -hmm. having gone through college with folks who went to those uh, sorts of environments that feels like that's a very different place than Brooklyn or Queens how did how did that come about and what was that experience like going from New York to a place like that I think it's in California right?
0: Yeah. So the Kate School is a a private high school. It's a boarding school in Santa Barbara, California. You know, there's a whole network of very prestigious and expensive boarding schools on the East Coast. So for any of the listeners, you know, you might hear these names because a lot of times, you know, our country's foremost politicians, business owners, you know, titans of the industry they send their kids to these types of schools, high schools. So, you know, I I was looking at schools like Choate, Rosemary Hall, Exeter, Andover, you know, these these really like old kind of prestigious, stodgy boarding schools on the East Coast. But none of them, you know, really spoke to me. And I I did feel like I would be a fish out of water. But I got the opportunity to learn about the Kate School through uh, a program that I attended in New York City called the Boys Club of New York. And the Boys Club is basically like the Boys and Girls Club, but it's focused on New York City young men. It's set up as like an afterschool program where you can get help for homework, but also engage in extracur- extracurricular activities. But what the Boys Club does is they kind of create a pipeline for these young men to get exposed to private schools and the, and the network of schools that they have relationships with. So ultimately, you know, I was performing well at the Boys Club and, and, and also in my current school in New York City, almost like an A student, very active. I played basketball, I ran track, I was part of the computer club, I was doing all these different things. So the Boys Club identified that I had the type of talent and maybe the pedigree to also do well at a private school. And they, they paved the way for me to check out the Kate School, to fly over and visit. And once my family and I you know, saw the school, met some parents, talked to the staff, it was a no-brainer for me. It was, it was something that I knew would be transformational. Even at the age of 16, I, I had the foresight or like the maybe even the instinct to feel that taking myself out of my usual environment in, in Brooklyn and going across the country, living somewhere on my own and learning what it's like to be amongst different people would be a positive change for me that could benefit me in the future. Fortunately, my parents supported me in making that decision, and and I was off to the races from there.
1: Wow. It's one thing to have that instinct and say, oh, this is a good opportunity. Well, what was the reality, though? That must have been a pretty dramatic change. Did you build yourself up sort of being open, or did you find yourself you know, coming to it with preconceived notions and just expectations that got blown away? Oh yeah.
0: I have to say that for me to even make that choice to go to the Kate school, going 3000 miles away to a super affluent private school. I was one of, in fact, there was only two people, two black males in my graduating class. And I went from a school in New York City that had, I think at the time we had 1,600 students, whereas the Kate School in its entire school had only 260 students. So everything was different inside and out from you know schooling to even the environment and the cities that we're in. But I think at the end of the day, there must have been things that had that gone on in my life and experiences that I had that made me open and open to change and, and really welcoming of challenges. You know, I have to attribute that to just my family and my parents, and then some of the things that they put us through, like going away to sleepaway camp and going playing on the, a traveling basketball team and a traveling football team. I got to see how being exposed to the to the broader world was constructive. So I relished the opportunity to go to the Cape School. To speak more to your point, it was definitely life changing. And the preconceived notions that I had about white people, wealth, gender, everything got completely smashed, you know, when I was living on my own and and at this school. You know, I I can remember literally within the first week of school, there was a time where we were walking around Santa Barbara, you know, which is a very affluent city. But in Santa Barbara, like in the downtown area, it has a super high rate of homelessness. I just remember thinking, oh, wow, although Santa Barbara is a rich place, there are people who are also financially struggling and they're struggling in the same way that I've seen people struggle in New York City, where, you know, you see homelessness right out in the open everywhere. You know, there were things that I think were new to me when I, when I went to the Kate School, but I think I certainly became a better person because of that, that whole experience.
1: Yeah, I think you used the word transformative, which is pretty clear from the way you're describing it. And what a tremendous opportunity and a catalyst for the future for your life. So you go to college and I think you went to Boston College. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. And what did you study there?
0: Like many college students, I bounced around between majors for a few years. I eventually graduated with two degrees, so um, a bachelor's in psychology and then a master's in business management.
1: That's a that's a good combination. Um, and so, where did that take you? What where did you do out of school?
0: Well, first and foremost, I was I was also playing football at Boston College,
1: which is no small school for football. <laughs> yeah, That's legit.
0: To say the least, the people the people of Boston they take sports very seriously. And um, when I was in school, this was I can say the early two thousands. Boston College was a really big deal. You know, we were nationally ranked. We were on a streak of going to bowl games every year. So you know, it was like being a little bit of a, a mini celebrity on campus and even around Boston when I was when I was playing football then. So that definitely shaped my college experience. And it also opened up a ton of different doors for opportunities outside of school. For the first maybe two, three years, I did have this dream of playing in the NFL. But once it became clear to me that that wasn't going to be my path, I completely focused on getting a job and, and establishing myself in the working world. So I started taking internships during the last couple of years of school, even while playing football. And I ultimately met a couple of people. One guy was an alum and also a former football player at BC. He was an entrepreneur. He had successfully founded companies, sold companies. He'd been on boards of a few others. He literally like took me under his wing and became a mentor to me because we had similar backgrounds and stories. He also grew up in Queens. We, we, funny enough, we played football for the same little league team. Basically, we had a lot of connections. So I think he just had a liking to me and he just exposed me to this whole world of entrepreneurship and venture and startups. That's really where my mind started to change about what I wanted to do. But the first job that I got outside of school was working at an investment bank. And that was also kind of like supported and set up through my mentor And some people at the Boys Club of New York, they had trustees and board members who were also partners at this investment bank. Once I was able to get my foot in the door through an interview, you know, I I took it from there and was able to get a job in finance for the first couple of years out of college. So that's what led me right out of Boston College into the working world.
1: Nice. It's, I'm hearing a lot of common themes of kind of serendipity of places and organizations and people that are sort of teeing you up to guide your journey. So that's a great story.
0: Well, you know, can I add something real quick? Serendipity has a, has a connotation to it that reflects a little bit of luck. And I think that is definitely true to a certain degree. But I do want to give agency to our ability as human beings and especially people who are in the entrepreneurial world. I need to speak to the importance of making good decisions that have outsized returns and impacts on your life. Because, you know, at some point during these different junctures in my life, I did need to decide to Go to the boys club and take these exams and things that they were putting me through seriously because I valued what was on the other end of the rainbow, you know, or on the end of this journey. And similarly with deciding which school to go to, what first job you take, who you engage with as a partner, you know, these things become platforms for the next stage of your life. And I recognized early on when I was young, I'm not sure exactly how or why, but I recognized that whenever I reached these different crossroads that seemed like either an opportunity or potentially a a mistake, I, I really honed in and focused on this type of decision and whether it would change my life for the better. If you do believe in the, the agency that we do have through our own decision making, you can give some credence to serendipity or luck, but you can also take some solace in knowing that you can control the the types of people you're around and the opportunities that are around you if you make good decisions with the opportunities that are in front of you.
1: Absolutely. No, I love it. There's definitely agency and a lot of people talk about luck is really opportunity plus preparedness. Exactly. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Susani from Dollar Ride.
2: Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual PRO membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes such as our Black-owned VC firms index or the Top 100 Black Researchers in Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com.
1: So we're back with Susani from Dollar Ride. So Sue, tell us about your first entrepreneurial experience. This is not your first go around with startups.
0: No, it's not. Dollar Ride is my third venture. The first one was my foray into the music and entertainment space. And I always tell people that there was so much that I learned from just making mistakes during this business, but it was indeed the most fun time I had in my life starting a company and doing it with friends. And it definitely helped shape, you know, the way I perceive the business world and the types of things that I want to work on going forward. I think this was, what, early 2008, 2009, a couple friends of mine and I, we had the bright idea of creating a production company and a a recording studio, like all merged into one. So sort of like a one-stop shop creative space in Harlem, New York, where local artists, musicians, entertainers, anyone who really needs to create media in order to showcase their talent. One of my partners was an audio engineer, a music producer, and an artist himself. So he was very creative, but he was also highly technical. And then the other partner was a web developer and a music producer himself. You know, as the three-headed monster, I brought more of like the business acumen and the time and resources to also try to get deals and contracts. I brought that to the table. But essentially, we were just, you know, three young guys, fresh out of college, trying to create a business for the first time for ourselves but also just inspired and enamored by music and entertainment and hip hop especially.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool. Although 2008 and 2009 was a, a little bit of a challenging time. <laughs> Think about starting a company, did that influence the trajectory for that first project?
0: Yeah, it, it certainly did. You know, we we probably didn't pick the best time to start a business especially a services-based business. But we, you know, we ultimately spent about two and a half years, close to three years operating the company. And I think beyond like the macroeconomic things that were happening, you know, in the world and with the economy, really our issue was that we didn't know how to make real money in the music industry. So, you know, we had a, a recording studio, and we were able to successfully rent out the studio, sell packages or, or our services to artists and their managers, you know, and that brought in some revenue, but it wasn't enough to sustain the business long-term and to and actually get us to grow, to hire more people so that we can do more things. In the very, very like late, I'd say, late third of our time in the company, we did eventually figure out that, you know, we can get music placed in films and in stadiums and in, in other venues, and that licensing play is a little bit more lucrative. We also were able to get into get our artists in commercials and, and operate a little bit as like an agent for them. But ultimately, it was too little too late. We just had to close things down. It's a learning experience.
1: Learning is good. It can be expensive, but it's where the growth happens. How do you move from the music industry into We Did It, which is decidedly not in the music industry?
0: There was a, a stepping stone to We Did It, but you know, one that cannot be understated. So once we knew that we were going to close down the studio, you know, I immediately started looking for a job and. But this time I was very, very intentional about where I wanted to work. Again, I had the, the fortune to be surrounded by a couple of mentors who were all telling me that I should look at tech and software as you know, something to get into and, and to become entrepreneurial as soon as I possibly can. But you know, I didn't have the confidence to start a, a tech company at that time. You know, I didn't know anything about building a software program or running that type of business. So I was encouraged to go work at a tech company and specifically to go work in sales. From that position as a salesperson, you'll have responsibility like a business owner would for responsibility over bringing in income and understanding the basics of a P&L, profit and loss statement. And especially if you grow in the ranks as a manager, you you'll really be managing that aspect of the business for your team or for your office. That's what I did. You know, I, I found a company called the Meltwater Group, which is still around today. They're actually a, a global leader in media monitoring software. I, I joined the Meltwater Group as a salesperson. I eventually also worked as an account manager and nearly the entire time I was there, I was only there for two years, I was also working on my next business venture and that became We Did It. I I definitely learned a ton from selling software and working at a tech company that had a thousand people at the time, I think 10,000 or 20,000 customers all around the world. That gave me a real intimate view into the world of technology and the power that it can bring.
1: So tell us what is We Did It and what did it do and where did it go? How did it happen? Well, first and foremost,
0: when I was at Meltwater, I, as a salesperson, had a knack for bringing on nonprofit clients. I just was able to to sell effectively into that space, and that gave me a lot of exposure into the challenges that nonprofits face. And the number one most common issue that my clients would talk about was raising money, you know, essentially how difficult it is. But more importantly, especially at that time, this is like 2010, 2011, how difficult it was to raise money online. So the, the insight that I had was that there's a growing number of nonprofits that want to raise money through the internet, but they don't know how. They don't have the resources or the skills or the experience around them within their own organizations to execute on this stuff. So maybe I can create a business around doing that, helping them raise money online. Fortunately, I had a sales manager at the Meltwater Group who was super entrepreneurial, extraordinarily charismatic and talented person. He was looking for an opportunity and we were also good friends and we, we decided to leave the Meltwater group together to build We Did It. It was an amazing experience working with a friend as well as somebody that I admired and really looked up to. Ultimately, we, we built the company as a software business and we ended up selling the software to nonprofits. And the result of that was definitely eight years of blood, sweat and tears. But we got to a point where we had uh, about 2000 nonprofit clients after eight years. We were helping all of those customers raise $60 million online every year. Wow. Yeah. Humble beginnings, you know, because we started out literally in our apartments in Brooklyn. My co founder and I, we moved in together in a small apartment in Bushwick and, you know, we ate ramen noodles for like two years while we <laughs> figured out how to cobble together a team and build the software and sell it. But after a few years, we got to an inflection point where it was clear that the business was working and that we're making money. And that's when the acquisition offer started to come in.
1: What was that inflection point? Can you tell us more about that? I mean, was there an event or you just saw everything sort of coming together? I mean, what was that inflection point where you were like, yeah, this is really running now?
0: Well, the inflection point was it's exemplified by this adage that I've heard a few times. I'm not sure who coined it, but there's riches in the niches. And we literally found like a a subsect or like a niche within the nonprofit industry that was incredibly lucrative for we did it. So this is like in 2017. So about six years into the business, we got an investment from an organization in Buffalo called 43 North. And they run a a state-sponsored program where they invite entrepreneurs to move up to Buffalo for at least a year, and they help you accelerate your business. And during that year, they helped us identify and hone in on this very small subsector of our nonprofit industry called fiscal sponsors. You know, when we when we focused on those types of organizations, we found that they bought our product a ton and, uh, you know, we were able to grow really, really quickly from bringing on those types of clients. So, but it took us six years to get to that point, right? So we had to like stumble around a bit before we found the right niche within our industry that helped us really explode.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, the classic overnight success story that takes years. I mean, it sounds like it was an amazing experience. And so, as you mentioned, the company ended up being acquired. Yep,
0: that's correct. You know, that was my my first acquisition, and it was an amazing experience in and of itself. But indeed, after eight years, we actually reached a crossroads where my co-founders and I were wondering, like, well, what do we do with this business? Because it's it's still growing, it's growing fast, but it, it wasn't what we considered a home run type of venture. So, you know, we were at a point where we're thinking, all right, can we sell this business or, or do we liquidate it and try to give our investors their money back? So we're kind of like playing around with all these different ideas. And this was at December 20, I think December, 2018. So we go from having a conversation that included options, like getting out of the business, even though we're doing pretty well, To three weeks later, having a term sheet, in fact, two term sheets on the table. So it was like a complete like 180 turn of events that happened. And that's when things got a lot more serious. And we got really excited about, you know, going through this next stage of the company where it could be acquired and become part of a much larger business and the product can still live on.
1: Were you out looking and talking to people? That's a pretty quick transformation of events. How did you go in three weeks from sort of this, where do we go from here to, wow, there's a bunch of people interested in, in making us a part of them?
0: Yeah, this is interesting too. Long story short, for about a year earlier, I did start conversations with several potential acquirers, including private equity firms. And for the founders who are listening, you know, you might actually get these cold emails because I think I was getting them very early on. And I've talked to other friends of mine who are founders and they get these things, too. But like private equity firms, the corporate venture arms of big companies that are acquisitive, they'll often fish for deals. And what they do is they just basically send out a bunch of cold emails to various companies that are on their radar. So for a long time, I would just ignore these emails because I just thought like there's no way we're able to sell our company. We didn't have, we didn't have the interest in selling it at the time but eventually these some of these folks are really persistent so i got on a phone call with one and then i realized that okay you know what they're what they're trying to present is pretty compelling you know they ultimately are following our company they're following our progress and they do think that maybe at some point in the future there could be a way where we could partner or or where they could acquire us but those conversations and that potential outcome still seemed really distant to me so i didn't put a lot of stock into it But I would say, though, from start to finish, it it was about a year long process of talking to one particular private equity firm and consistently sharing updates around the business and our traction with them for, you know, four to five quarters in a row. And ultimately, once they saw that we continued to grow and our business was doing well, they were the first ones to present an opportunity to to join join forces with one of their portfolio companies.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: And then once I got that one term sheet, we had a little bit of time to shop it around. And then we got another term sheet from another potential acquirer. So there was a little bit of a snowball effect after you get that first opportunity.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how that can happen. So congratulations on that. That's a wonderful outcome. And it sounds like it was a great experience. Are there things from your first entrepreneurial experiences that are sort of the major lessons or takeaways that you said, okay, if I do this again, either I'm going to do it that way again, or I'm definitely not going to do that again, or help us understand sort of what that means to be sort of the learning. Cause you had one outcome that you had the sunset and then one where you had an acquisition. So keeping a scorecard, I guess you've got learning on both sides.
0: Absolutely. You know, some of the stuff it might even be seen as conventional wisdom, but I do have some things that I think are a little more unique. First and foremost, which I'm sure people have heard before, choosing the right co founders and business partners early on sets the stage for your trajectory. I learned through the recording studio, you know, that company was called All Smiles, you know, your business partners mean a lot and you have to choose wisely. Although I'm still friends with those guys. You know, we didn't have the best relationship even while working and that reared its ugly head as times got tough. And then, you know, conversely, if we did it, you know, I was super fortunate to have two co-founders who stayed with the business the entire way and were supportive of what we were doing the entire time through the good times and the bad. So that made me like desperate for a strong co-founder and the type of relationship that I thought would be constructive for a long time. And then the the second learning that I think was super helpful is that it's way easier to build a business around a true market need. So you don't want to really be involved in things that are nice to haves. You want to do stuff that people really need, things that they can't live without. And, you know, if you kind of look at the trajectory of businesses that I've been a part of, I'm trying to get closer and closer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and like, you know, really doing stuff that makes a, a tremendous impact on people's lives. So, you know, entertainment is, is somewhere on that spectrum. That's where I was with the first company. But, you know, now I've gotten down to dollar ride where based off of my experience before the, with the other two companies.
1: Great wisdom. And that's that's what it's all about at the end of the day is what can we take from our experience and bring it forward? We will take another short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Susani from Dollar Ride.
2: Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual PRO membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our Black-owned VC firms index, or the Top 100 Black Researchers in Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com.
1: So we're back with Susani from Dollar Ride. So, Sue, we're having a great conversation. And now let's hop into Dollar Ride. Let's hear about where did the idea come from? What's the origin story behind Dollar Ride?
0: Sure. Dollar Ride came from a combination of experiences that I had in my life that confirmed that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to solving a transportation-related issue. When I lived in East New York, Brooklyn, this is where I grew up, as early as seven years old, I remember having to walk 25, 30 minutes to the nearest subway. And it was kind of strange at the time, even at seven years old, that my commute was so challenging. Like I had to start out with a half an hour walk. Even though we lived in the, the greatest city in the world with the greatest public transportation, I and my sisters, we were walking to school or, or going to school. And, and, and that began with a walk just to get to the subway. You know, moreover, once we were in the subway system, it still took us another hour to get to school. So um I just hated my commute at a young age. I lived in a, a neighborhood that was also relatively rough. So, you know, it didn't feel safe walking to school at seven in the morning when it's still dark and cold out, you know, and you live in East New York, Brooklyn in the early 90s. That really shaped the way I thought about transportation access and its impact on families and and people in, in their daily lives. But when I became an adult and was more entrepreneurial, this is when I realized that there was actually a solution to this transit desert issue, which is what I experienced when I was a kid. A transit desert is basically a place where people live, yet they have incredibly poor access to public transportation. And that inaccessibility could be a result of them being too poor to afford their own car, or the public transit system in their area just doesn't reach where they need to go, or maybe even the bus service in their local area doesn't come frequently enough for them to rely on it. So this cadre of issues are all reflected in this concept of a transit desert. I realized that in New York City, we have this ecosystem of dollar vans that operate in the outer boroughs and and predominantly they solve a problem for people who live in the transit deserts in these areas. One of my, in fact, two of my uncles were dollar van drivers back in the 80s. And, you know, at the time when I was like hanging out with my cousins and around my uncles, I remember always seeing that they had like wads of dollar bills on them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, uncle, I know you're not a stripper, but what do you do? (laughs) You know, so... (laughs) <laughs> I'm just kind of putting these things together as a young kid, you know, but uh, at one point I, eventually I realized oh, that they, they informed me of like the job that they really do. And, you know, they went from being single drivers operating their own vehicle to eventually having a fleet of vehicles and drivers who worked for them. So this started shaping my ideology around dollar van business and its usefulness as an economic engine. So I got to a point with my uncles where I partnered with them to do a research project where through that project, I learned about the dollar van industry, what their customers wanted, the transit issues that people are facing and why they choose dollar vans as a resource. And, and that research helped me decide that you know I want to go into this business and that I can actually make it better using my skills as a technologist and as an entrepreneur.
1: Makes a lot of sense. And I have experienced that myself. Shout out to my mom. My mom actually advocated in Boston back in, I think it was the 80s or 90s for a bus route from the the big shopping centers into neighborhoods so people could you know go get their groceries and stuff. And I remember her lobbying with local politicians and government officials and the city council just to get this one bus route. So I'm pretty familiar with this concept of the transit desert. So dollar, have dollar vans been around for a long time? Are they in other cities?
0: Yeah, they've been around for nearly 40 years in New York City. And you can find dollar vans in major cities all around the US, but especially in the emerging market. But in America, you find dollar vans in Miami, where they're called Jitneys. They're also in Jersey City, so right across the bridge from us here in New York. But there's dollar vans and and also hack cabs, which are kind of like the cousins to a dollar van. But you you find these things in the major cities all around the country: Chicago, Houston, LA, and Atlanta. In, in fact, even San Juan, Puerto Rico has what we would call dollar vans. They call them publicos, but they operate the same way and it's the same type of ecosystem of entrepreneurs or contractors who have their own vehicles and they are performing a, a public benefit service of transportation for their local community.
1: Yeah. And I, my father's from Kenya and in Kenya, they have something called matatus, which sounds very similar. They sort of right. roam around the city and and uh, pick up people and sort of get them from point A to point B. And I imagine there's many places around the world that have similar ecosystems, as you say.
0: Over 100 billion trips are taken annually through informal transit systems like these, like matatus, dollar vans, jitneys, colectivos, trotros, tap taps, just about, (laughs) yeah, I can go on and on, but like every culture and ethnicity has their form of dollar vans. Tel Aviv, they're called cheroots, but they all work the same way on a fixed route system they're not backed by the government they are just entrepreneurs who are investing their resources into transporting people in their local communities super fascinating and definitely a huge underground industry
1: and so where did you see the opportunity to come in and use technology to solve a problem or to improve things with these kinds of ecosystems
0: so there's something that I do now more often and I think as I continue building businesses in my in my career I always try to get to the people, get close to the people as possible. And what I mean by that is literally going out and talking to your customers and living their lives in their shoes as best you can, because it's it's then where you'll experience the problems that they face. And you'll experience it so intimately that the solutions might be even more obvious. I did this with dollar van drivers, where after interviewing about 60 drivers, riding around with them for days and days on end, you know, doing like really intense research and creating relationships, I learned unequivocally that the one thing that dollar van drivers wanna do is grow their businesses. And they oftentimes think about growing their businesses as expanding to new markets, right? So in New York City specifically, there's an oversaturation of drivers on particular routes. So the opportunity for a driver to make more money in his eyes would be to go to a new neighborhood where there's a fresh route and therefore little competition on that route. So what we saw as an opportunity at Dollaride was us using our skills as marketers and engineers to create new routes and build up the, the demand on that route before we deploy drivers to those locations. That's really what got us started in terms of providing value to the ecosystem that, you know, made drivers want to work with us.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's almost like the Uberization of this dollar van ecosystem, right? Where there's this efficiency and synchronicity that you can achieve between demand and supply and maximize capacity and all that stuff. Actually, I think it's a brilliant idea. And because it is so... As you said, like loose networks, and you know, I'm sure there's some regulations around being a dollar van driver, but nonetheless, it's not like there's a central dispatch, right?
0: Correct. Yeah, and, and this is these are some people might see these as barriers, challenges, but if you're a glass half full person, you look at this as opportunities. Definitely, with dollar vans, matatus, and other informal transit, it's incredibly fragmented. So while that seems like controlled chaos at best, it also is an opportunity to create organization and transparency. And that's where we've been able to get you know, a lot of traction and create new transactions because we're the only company doing this style of work. And then we also play a a really important part in helping the regulators understand why people are choosing this mode of transportation and where the gaps are in our current public transit infrastructure. I saw these systemic issues in the dollar van industry as just opportunities to do things better. And I think we're getting rewarded with being a bit courageous here. There are a lot of things that still have not yet been completely solidified with how informal transit works and how it can be an integral part of our transit system. You know, we've just started and I think there's going to be a lot more good to be done going forward.
1: Nice. And so have you raised any money for this at this point? I've raised a little bit of money. It's a
0: great business to be in where, you know, your clients or your customers can truly fund your growth. So, you know, I am lucky in that with Dollaride's business model, we do work with a lot of corporate clients and local government agencies and the contract sizes of of those opportunities, they start out in the six figures. So that's been helpful for us growing. Nice. Yeah. Raising capital to date, we've raised 350 k in total. And I actually currently have an equity crowdfunding campaign going on right now on Republic where non-accredited investors, basically anybody with at least $100 and you know, the vision and the interest to join the, the movement that Dollaride Ride is pushing can become an investor and, and
1: join the journey. I love it. And you're my second interview with somebody from the equity crowdfunding space. What made you decide to pursue that? Was it the giving access to non-accredited or the different experience? Because you've probably raised money before with some of your other ventures.
0: I I only raised money for We Did It, but I I had an experience through that exit that made me really, really open and, and bullish on equity crowdfunding. When I sold We Did It, I remember having a conversation with some of my family members and, you know, one, because they don't know much about tech startups and the the world of investing and, and things like that. You know, a lot of them are working in healthcare and in you know, they're engineers, but they're not entrepreneurs. So they didn't know what the outcome could be when I was starting the business out in my apartment in Bushwick back in 2011. But you know, once I sold the company you know, and all this money came in and they're seeing the press releases and they're starting to understand what all this work was for, I had a conversation with some of my family members and they all kind of explained how they wish they knew what this was all about earlier and they wish they had the opportunity to invest because they know me personally, right? And they, they trust me and they love me. So of course they would support. And that was, that was warming to hear. But at the same time, I recognized that even if they wanted to, I probably couldn't even accept them as investors because they weren't accredited. And when I did raise money for we did it. You know, our minimum check size was $25,000. Right. So, you know, this was out of reach for my family members and close friends, even even though they wanted to support me. When I became aware of Republic and other platforms like them that allows non-accredited investors to invest as little as $100 in startups. This, to me, there was like a light bulb moment that, you know, here's my opportunity to do this the right way. And, and more importantly, do it in a way where the local community, so drivers, you know, pedestrians or potential passengers, the people in New York City who are taking dollar vans, they can invest in Dollar Ride and also be a part of this journey with us as a, as a shareholder. That's the reason why I, I wanted to raise some money on Republic and provide this opportunity to you know, non-traditional tech investors.
1: I love it. Yeah, I think it's really going to be an evolution or maybe a revolution in fundraising between the way that people are setting up funds now and this idea that non-accredited investors can participate in, in these yeah. opportunities. So that's awesome. So where does Dollar Ride go from here? What's your big vision for Dollar Ride at this point? Well-
0: Our vision is to create the infrastructure that allows informal transit to be part of the fabric of public transportation in any city. You know, right now, informal transit is still very much disconnected. And in some cities, it's demonized in in, in a lot of ways. But because it's such a strong resource for the people who really, really need it, and the cost of extending our subway systems or adding more buses and bus routes creating a gondola like these types of capital intensive investments that you know are only put on by the state or really the federal government you know they're too expensive and they take too long And people need solutions now. So, you know, my vision is to make Dollar Ride the catalyst and like the glue that allows our public transit infrastructure to be a lot more flexible and malleable through its partnership with dollar vans and the like. So, we're starting out in New York City over the next three years you'll see that there'll be probably three times as many dollar van routes. And our aim is to grow the ridership from 120,000 daily riders, which is what it is today, to 600,000 daily riders, which represents the total number of people who live in transit deserts in New York City. But from there, we're gonna go to every city that has dollar vans already. And then from there, every city that has a transit desert, which includes 52 cities. So, you know, my vision for Dollar Ride is definitely expansive, but, you know, the problem that we're trying to solve, it's really, really prevalent in every city that I'm talking about. So I think it's just a matter of time before we're in a city near you.
1: Awesome. Well, this has been a tremendously credible conversation. So thanks so much. But before we go, why don't you tell folks how can they find out more about crowdfunding, how to access you or your company via social media? How would you like people to follow up with you if they're interested in learning more?
0: The easiest way to get in touch with us and to check out what we're doing is to go to our website, which is DollarRide.com. And dollaride is spelled D-O-L-L-A-R-I-D-E.com. You can learn more about the business there. You can download the apps. And more importantly, you can check out the links to our crowdfunding campaign on Republic. Similarly, if you want to reach us through social, we're at dollaride on Twitter, on Instagram. And uh, we're also Dollar eyed on Facebook. So we're not hard to find at all.
1: And that's a nice, clean URL and brand, which is always great. Well, thanks so much, Sue. This has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully I continue to do well with, with business and I can be back again for another story and another conversation.
1: Yeah, let's count on that. Excellent. Thank you for your time, Daniel. We'd like to thank our guest, Sue Sani, and our sponsor, Lab. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen T-O. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Editing and production by Internet Radio Corporation. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzuk. Our music was arranged and composed by Michael Kihanya. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.